Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we bring you the last episode of our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Today's subject is Ramon Navarro. Ramon Navarro was a Mexican actor and singer who apparently had sexual relationships only with men, but due to a combination of his devotion to Catholicism, censorship of non-heterosexuality in early Hollywood, and his own preference for privacy, Navarro chose to keep his sex life private and his public persona closeted for all of his 69 years alive. Navarro was brutally outed, when his murder at the hands of two men who he invited over to his house, ostensibly for sex, came to light. You wouldn't know most of even this very basic summary of who Ramon Navarro was from reading Hollywood Babylon. Here is an unedited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon, containing Kenneth Anger's only extended writing about the star. 
Ramon Navarro's ghastly death by beating in 1968, brought to mind the bizarre crimes of Hollywood's past. Here was a man dying as he had lived, extravagantly, choked in his own blood. The lead Art Deco dildo which Valentino had given him 45 years earlier, thrust down his throat. Two dumb beasts, Hustler Brothers from Chicago, Paul and Tom Ferguson, chose October 31st, Halloween, to play Death Angels for the 69-year-old Ben-Hur. All the boys wanted was his petty cash, $5,000, which they'd heard from other hustler bums that Navarro kept hidden in his Hollywood Hills home. They tore the place apart, ripping to pieces the mementos of his long career, which meant nothing to the greedy Credens. Souvenirs? Drenched in blood. Anger details Navarro's violent death without really dealing with who he was when he was alive. Up to this point in the book, Anger has only dropped breadcrumbs here and there about the star, including the claim, which we teased in our Rudolph Valentino episode, that Navarro kept the quote-unquote Art Deco dildo engraved with Valentino's signature in a shrine to the Italian star in his bedroom. Anger also claims that in 1931, Navarro entered a monastery to cover for the fact that he had been forced into retirement by talking pictures. But that's it. Anger says nothing else about Navarro, his movies, what kind of star he was, or what he did for almost 40 years between supposedly retiring to a monastery and getting murdered in his home. So, today, in our final episode of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon, we are going to fill in the blanks left by anger and talk about who Ramon Navarro was, the myriad reasons his career waned somewhat later than the date Anger gives, how he navigated his seemingly contradictory religion and sexuality, and the truth behind the grisly evening that ended his life. Join us, won't you, for one last fact check on Ramon Navarro. In his obituary in Variety, Navarro was described as the gentle, gentlemanly version of Valentino. But Navarro's background and star persona were quite different from that of the Italian star. Ramon was the fourth of 12 children born to Mariano and Leonor Samaniegos. Ramon's father was a successful dentist, and the family was upper class until the Mexican Revolution. Around the same time, the patriarch contracted a nerve disease that forced him to retire from his dentistry practice. After a few years of struggle, the family legally immigrated to Texas and then moved on to Los Angeles because Ramon was hoping to pursue a career in show business. 
Ramon began finding sporadic work as a movie extra, while also working as a theater usher and a nude model for art classes. Marion Morgan, choreographer and partner of director Dorothy Arzner, spotted Navarro when he was working at the Majestic Theater and cast him in her dance troupe. Growing up in his devoutly Catholic Mexican family, with whom he still lived, Ramon probably would have been sheltered from examples of out homosexuality until meeting Morgan, who lived openly with Arzner, and working and traveling with dancers for months on end. Though there's little evidence that he pursued relationships with men right away, this is likely the point in Navarro's life when he began to acknowledge his sexual preference to himself and to understand how a gay person could have a career in entertainment without reprisal or punishment for who they choose to sleep with, if they compartmentalized their sexuality and their work. Ramon's first major film role was in the silent picture, The Prisoner of Zenda. The film was directed by Rex Ingram, who had helped to launch Rudolph Valentino by directing him in The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Ramon had been an extra in that film. Ingram had been looking for a replacement for Valentino, who had been difficult to work with on Horsemen and had since left Ingram's home base of Metro Pictures for rival studio Famous Players Lasky. Ingram worried that Navarro, at 23, was too young for the part of the rogue Rupert in Zenda, but Ingram liked the idea of being able to shape a star and retain control over him. He put the young actor through three screen tests and then finally gave him the part. Ingram was so happy with Ramon's performance that virtually as soon as the Zenda shoot was over, the director cast the actor in his next project, a remake of Ingram's own Black Orchids, in which Navarro would play a dual role. Ingram began working with the movie press to build Navarro up as a rival star to Valentino, even having the Mexican actor comb his hair like the Italian actors for photo shoots. This time, Ingram wanted to avoid the egomania which he felt had afflicted Valentino after their collaboration. Ingram gave Navarro the following warning. Very soon, you will be seeing in print that you are a genius and the reincarnation of Apollo. Don't believe either statement, as I am paying good money to have that published. It was during the production of Black Orchids that Ramon, under mild duress, agreed to change his last name from the difficult-to-pronounce-and-spell Samaniegos to Navarro. Navarro didn't have the biggest part in The Prisoner of Zenda, but when the film was released, he upstaged the ostensible top-billed star, actor Lewis Stone. There was a touch of danger to this character and this performance, but very quickly, Navarro would distinguish himself as a very different type of Latin lover than Valentino. As we discussed in our episode about him, Valentino's appeal had much to do with his pantomime of defying consent, allowing women to fantasize about being forced to have the sex 
the movies assumed they wanted to have, but weren't allowed in polite society to say yes to. Navarro's characters rarely took women by force. They won them over with their boyish charm and moxie, or asked politely. Movie publicity frequently mentioned Navarro's Mexican ethnicity, but there was little attempt to conform his star persona to stereotypes about Mexicans. In fact, though he would be cast as all kinds of ethnicities, some of which he played more credibly than others, during the period of his major stardom, he never played Mexican characters. Navarro soon signed a long-term contract with Metro Pictures, who now took over promoting him as a star, although he would continue to work with Ingram on films like Where the Pavement Ends and Scaramouche, in which Navarro's sword-fighting hero would become a sensation, catapulting Navarro to a new level of stardom. By 1924, when Scaramouche was released, it was important to have a studio's publicity department behind a star, especially if that star, like Navarro, had a personal life that he wanted to keep quiet. Magazines like Photoplay would occasionally print rumors about the unconventional relationships of the stars. These items would be written in a code decipherable by sophisticates and insiders, almost as if they were secret messages to both the members of the audience that would appreciate queerness and to the Hollywood workers who wanted to patrol that queerness and make sure it was kept on the down low. With Metro behind him, Ramon was able to avoid gossip about his personal life until he started dating a key architect of Hollywood gossip. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com 
slash YMRT. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. After the success of Scaramouche, Ingram felt emboldened to take on his former protege Valentino more directly. He convinced Metro to pay for a location shoot in Turkey for a film titled The Arab, which aimed to counter Valentino's blockbuster The Sheik with a more accurate portrayal of the Arab world it would be difficult to be less accurate than the rapey The Sheik, but The Arab would still be a fantasy film, with Navarro playing a Bedouin in love with a Christian missionary. To get to Turkey, Ramon and the film company sailed first to France. They were accompanied by Herbert Howe, a reporter for Photoplay and other publications, who had been hired to work as the Arab's publicist. Beginning with this boat trip and the location shoot, Howe and Navarro would become an inseparable power couple, with Howe revealing himself to be Navarro's quote-unquote closest friend in the fan magazines he wrote for. To those who knew the real nature of Howe and Navarro's relationship, the publicist's columns about the star would read as revealing. But most readers were totally oblivious to the fact that both writer and subject were gay. Certainly nothing about Navarro's screen persona read as effeminate. And unlike Valentino, he didn't tempt the rumor mill by dressing like a dandy, or consorting with strong, bisexual women. Fans were not given a reason to ask questions about Navarro's sexuality. After the Arab footage was in the can, Ingram expected to be assigned to direct the studio's next epic, Ben-Hur. But while Ingram and Navarro were on location, their studio Metro had been merged with two rivals to form Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The new super studio would be run by Louis B. Mayer, who thought Ingram was overrated. In fact, Mayer demanded supervision over the editing of the Arab and made it clear that Ingram would only direct Ben-Hur over Mayer's dead body. Ingram had been feeling fed up for a while, and he then announced that he would not return to Hollywood and would instead settle in Europe and make films there. This put Navarro in a tough spot because all he wanted to do was work with his mentor, with whom he had made all five of his most significant films to date. But Ramon's contract had been absorbed by MGM, and he was at the mercy of the studio's new management. Ingram wouldn't get a chance to work on Ben-Hur, but Navarro would. The film began production with George Walsh in the lead, directed by Charles Braben, 
from a script by June Mathis. After a few months of production, the film was proving to be such a disaster that MGM fired Mathis, Braben, and Walsh and regrouped. Fred Niblo, who had worked with Navarro twice, was hired as the new director, and Mayer decided to give Navarro the title role, probably because the only other star of his stature at MGM, John Gilbert, was unavailable. Navarro was not obvious casting for the role of a Jewish prince. Putting aside the obvious issue of his ethnicity, Navarro was physically not ready for a film which would require him to be frequently topless. At just five foot six, Ramon tended to run a bit pudgy. As soon as he got to Rome for the shoot, he was paired with a physical trainer. But in the end, the makeup department had to paint muscles into his flesh, and his co-star, Francis Bushman, had to stand in a trench to make up for the difference in their heights. Ben-Hur was the most expensive film produced at that point in history, and it needed to make an enormous amount of money at the box office to turn a profit. Like future money pits, Titanic and Avatar, much of the industry was betting against it. And as would happen with James Cameron's blockbusters, Ben-Hur proved the doubters wrong. Demand for the film was so massive that it was able to play special roadshow engagements for a full two years, before entering into nationwide general release in 1927. It became Ramon Navarro's signature film, and cemented his status at MGM, where the only equivalent stars were John Gilbert and horror icon Lon Chaney. But Navarro's ethnicity made his star persona more complicated than that of other stars. As the 1920s wore on and the Hayes office became more powerful, Navarro couldn't play Mexicans on screen in romantic parts because there were no Mexican actresses for him to play opposite, and the censorship rules forbid the depiction of mixed-race couplings. Because Navarro's skin did not appear dark on screen, and silent films did not require him to speak in his accented voice, Navarro was often cast as a European, while MGM's publicity reported that the Mexican actor was just like an American. As for his sexuality, the studio leaked reports that Navarro dated numerous starlets, but they did not pressure Navarro to actually go on these dates, or to marry a woman to hide his true sexual identity. One reason for this was probably that his boyfriend, Herbert Howe, was in charge of Navarro's publicity. But also, Louis B. Mayer was not bothered by the fact that Ramon was gay, because Ramon was so discreet about it, and because Navarro's movies consistently made money especially overseas, even when they weren't very good. Instead of focusing on fake romances, Howe promoted the fact that Navarro supported his large family, which was true, and credited that support for occupying so much of Ramon's time and money that he couldn't even think about taking a wife. 
But then, in 1928, Howe and Navarro broke up. Howe wrote a barely veiled assessment of his now ex-lover in the magazine New Movie, accusing Ramon of essentially having no inner life, or at any rate, being unable to share his true inner self in an intimate relationship. You get the essence of him seeing him on the screen. How wrote, off the screen, he is a theater with the lights out. Even before Navarro lost this key ally, he missed working with Rex Ingram, and felt as though his career was at loose ends. It was around this time that he did contemplate joining a monastery. Kenneth Anger mentions this desire to flee Hollywood for the spiritual realm. In the context of Navarro's rocky transition into talkies, but it actually happened earlier and had more to do with the fact that MGM seemed unsure as to how to use Navarro on screen. Navarro did reportedly contact a monastery and ask to take their vows, but the monastery turned him down, believing that a Hollywood star couldn't be serious about or well equipped for. A monk's life. There was more disappointment ahead. In 1927, he had decided to begin pursuing his childhood dream of singing opera. Navarro did travel to Europe in March 1929 in anticipation of making his opera debut, but for reasons that remain unclear, the actual singing debut didn't happen. With these two paths away from Hollywood closed to him, Navarro put his hopes on the coming of sound. Yes, he spoke with an accent, but he hoped his burgeoning singing career would earn him a place in musical films. He successfully dipped a toe in that water with *The Pagan*, a transitional late silent film with a synced soundtrack, which featured a theme song. Sung by Navarro. Come with me where moonbeams, night sashes and stars, and the starlit waters linger in your eyes. This song runs throughout the pagan, rendering its narrative all the more dreamlike and swoony. Ramon plays the quote-unquote half-caste owner of a South Pacific plantation, who has no interest in monetizing the bananas and coconuts that grow there. Then, an evil white trader comes around, wanting to export his coconuts. When we first see Navarro's character Henry, he's being told by his native servant that the white man has come to do business. Henry says, "I'm too busy for business." What he's busy doing is lying around, barely clothed, in just a brief sarong, eating bananas while a fallen white city woman, played by Renee Adderay, watches him admiringly. There's a pan up of Navarro's barely clothed body, from his toes to his face, 
emulating the actress's gaze. As she's lamenting that she wishes she had made her way to the island before whatever happened to her virtue, Henry is hypnotized by the siren call of a native woman, who is being kept on a ship by the white trader, who calls her his ward but obviously has sexual designs on her. Henry and this girl fall in love, and their desire and simple-minded basic decency overcomes racism and capitalism. The Pagan was a massive hit in May 1929, and Ramon's song became an even bigger success. This inspired Louis B. Mayer to take a renewed interest in his star, and the studio mogul wired Navarro in Europe and asked him to come home to Hollywood so that the studio could capitalize on the success of The Pagan. The chosen vehicle, Devil May Care, was billed as the first dramatic operetta of the talkie era. The film was well-received, especially internationally, and now, contrary to Anger's depiction of Navarro as one of the early sound era's casualties, Ramon felt like his career was on sturdier footing than it had been since Ben-Hur. But musicals as a genre would have a rocky road during the first years of the talkie era. All the rage in 1929, they were considered passé by 1930, and were essentially dormant until Warner Brothers revived the genre a couple of years later with their gritty pre-code Busby Berkeley hits, like Gold Diggers of 1933 and 42nd Street. Navarro was again worried, and he again more or less landed on his feet by agreeing to star opposite Greta Garbo, in Matahari. Navarro's character in Matahari is pretty ridiculous. He's a Russian air courier of state secrets who manages to seduce Garbo's stripper slash spy moments after meeting her, then easily becomes her mark, but somehow makes her fall in love with him, which is, of course, a stripper slash spy's path to doom. Not many actors could pull this off, and I don't mean this as a backhanded compliment, but Ramon Navarro was perfect for playing a totally love-struck, completely naive idiot who you totally believe Greta Garbo would bone once and then develop a self-destructive soft spot for. Matahari became one of MGM's top-grossing films of 1932 and with 60% of its revenue coming from overseas, it reinforced that Navarro was a valuable international star. And yet, with the depression creeping on, MGM was in cost-cutting mode, and Mayer asked Ramon to take a pay cut. He refused, allowed his contract to lapse, and focused on singing. He sings a lot in his last film under his original contract to MGM, The Barbarian. The Barbarian, in which Ramon played an Egyptian prince turned crook who kidnaps Myrna Loy's white tourist, was a retread of Valentino's The Sheik, and Ramon's own retread of that, The Arab. Its original screenwriter quit because she felt that writing a fantasy of exotic rape 
from Depression-era Los Angeles was just too silly. Certainly, the replicas of the pyramids and the Sphinx erected in Yuma, Arizona, are creaky. And the film's attempts to reconcile a woman's eventual love for her rapist is not only gross, but completely unbelievable. Ultimately, The Barbarian is a bad movie with some good scenes and images, in which two stars who deserve better do their best with very bad material. It takes every opportunity to show Loy almost naked, and because of that, the film was altered in different ways by different local censorship boards, and it made just a small profit before the 1934 production code took effect, and The Barbarian became one of many films banned from re-release. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Navarro returned to Hollywood from a European singing tour and signed on to make a few more films for MGM. One of these, The Cat and the Fiddle, an operetta co-starring the queen of that genre, Jeanette MacDonald, was a good choice for Navarro. But it was extremely expensive to produce, and it lost money. Then came a terrible choice. For the first and only time in his Hollywood career, Navarro would be cast opposite a Mexican actress, Lupe Velez, in a film called Laughing Boy. This casting opened up the possibility of a censorship-sanctioned romance, but Laughing Boy wasn't about two Mexicans in love. It was about Native Americans, Navajos, one of whom is a prostitute. Aside from Navarro and Velez, the cast was populated by actual Native Americans, non-actors who were taught to speak the script's English lines phonetically. Laughing Boy was based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, but the studio considered the finished product to be so underwhelming that they barely gave it a release. Screenwriter John Lee Mahan was not the only one to blame the casting of an aging Navarro who, in his Johnny Depp in Benny and June wig, looked nothing like the real Navajos he was cast against. But Mahan's criticism was exceptionally cruel. The poor guy was a fag, Mahan sneered. And he was an old fag then. And he looked like an old whore, with his hair hanging down and a blanket on. Navarro would make just one more disappointing film at MGM. Then, right after New Year's 1935, 
Navarro was called into studio fixer Eddie Mannix's office. Your last pictures weren't very good, Mannix told Navarro. Ramon couldn't disagree. He was paid $19,000 to go away. Ramon Navarro's career as a movie star was essentially over. So what did he do with himself for the next 33 years? In 1935, Navarro had what has been described as a nervous breakdown. Although rather than seeking psychiatric treatment, he moved back into the mansion he had bought for his family, where his parents and siblings still lived. He brought his current boyfriend, a swimming champion, with him, forcing his Catholic family to confront his unspoken of sexuality for really the first time in his 36 years. While recuperating, Navarro began writing an autobiographical play about a Mexican actor's disillusion with wealth and fame. He abandoned this project when he was given the chance to direct a Spanish-language movie, which he did finish, but it was never released. Then came a huge disaster. Navarro made his stage acting debut in London in a musical adaptation of his early hit film, The Prisoner of Zenda. Rapidly losing control of his physique, thanks in part to a drinking problem that had developed as his movie career had tailed off, without the magic of movie makeup and lighting, Navarro appeared bloated, even while wearing a corset. But the real problem was that he was unable to project his voice in a theatrical setting. At the play's premiere, the audience heckled Navarro to speak up. They couldn't hear or understand what he was saying. Navarro did not handle this well. At one point, he broke character and shouted back into the audience, Now I don't understand you! At the end of the show, he thanked the audience for coming and praised those who had quietly enjoyed the show. This was greeted with jeers of, Go back to Hollywood. Reviews were bad, and the play closed. Word made it back to the Hollywood trade papers that Navarro had been laughed off of the London stage. This was not the end of Navarro's stage career. Far from it. Like many other faded Hollywood stars, he began making a living in Summerstock and other small-town repertory productions and tours. Navarro's film career also wasn't entirely over. He found some work in the 40s and 50s as a character actor in some interesting films, including John Huston's We Were Strangers and The Big Steel, produced by Howard Hughes and directed by Don Siegel. In the latter, incredibly, Navarro was cast for the first time as a Mexican character in a Hollywood movie. But beginning in the 1940s, Navarro began making headlines for a more unsavory reason. Over the next few years, Navarro was arrested many times for drunk driving, 
sometimes on the scene of an accident that he had caused. As a result of one car crash, a concussed Navarro also suffered two broken ribs, a dislocated ankle, and a chest injury. After another arrest, Navarro's driver's license was temporarily revoked. It would be notable that anger excluded these scandals from Hollywood Babylon's portrait of Navarro, if anger had shown any interest in anything about Navarro other than his death, its fictional connection to Valentino, and the fact that gay hustlers were responsible. Navarro had begun seeking the services of male sex workers in the 1950s. He usually had to be very drunk to take the plunge, and would sometimes drive recklessly around Hollywood, looking for pay-to-play boys to pick up. After a few more drunk driving arrests, Navarro was actually put on trial in 1960 and ordered to pay a fine. Two years later, he crashed his car again. This time, the police claimed that while being arrested, Navarro had muttered, I am old, and I just want to die, which he later denied. After this arrest, his license was permanently revoked, and he was sentenced to 15 days in jail, although due to legal maneuvering, he'd be released after one night. In the mid-1960s, Navarro moved to a house in Laurel Canyon, which would have been isolated for anyone but was particularly isolating for a man who wasn't able to drive himself. His finances were not good, but he continued to pay small amounts of money, $20 here, $40 there, for sexual services and companionship. He wrote checks and usually noted that they were for gardening or a massage. Navarro accumulated a network of boys he could call or who could call him if they needed the money. On October 30th, 1968, Navarro got a call from a young man who said he had received the former star's phone number from Larry Ortega, one of Navarro's repeat visitors. The caller described what he looked like, and Navarro invited him to come over later for a drink. The caller said he'd bring his younger brother with him. Navarro's one employee, his secretary-slash-driver, had the day off, so they would be alone for the night. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. The two brothers, Paul and Tom Ferguson, told conflicting stories as to what happened that night. Here is what seems to be true. Paul, age 22, had been divorced more than once, and as of the summer of 1968, he was newly remarried to a woman named Mary Ortega, sister of Larry Ortega. Paul's brother Tom, age 17, had dropped out of school in Chicago and gotten into a bunch of trouble, and in October 1968, he had come to Los Angeles to live with Paul as a last resort. Around the same time, Paul was laid off from his job, and his wife of less than six months left him. Paul, who had hustled men for money before, decided to try to find some older sugar daddies who could help support him and his brother. A friend gave Paul Navarro's number and told him to drop the name of Larry Ortega, the brother of Paul's now-estranged wife. The boys came over that evening, and Ramon and Paul began drinking heavily. Navarro told Paul that he should be in movies, that he could give Burt Lancaster a run for his money. Navarro told the younger Tom that he might be able to hire him as a gardener. It's what happened next that's murky. Paul initially told the police that he had drunkenly passed out on the couch, only to be awoken a while later by Tom, who told his brother that Navarro was dead. Paul said he then went into Navarro's bedroom and found him there, naked, his hands tied behind his back, his skin already blue. Paul said he wanted to call the police, but his brother suggested they make it look like Navarro was killed in a robbery, and Paul went along with it. But Tom told police that he had left Paul and Ramon alone and had gone into a guest room to call his ex-girlfriend in Chicago. While on the phone, Tom said, he heard screaming. He went into Navarro's bedroom and found the actor naked and bleeding profusely from his face. The actor was dazed, but alive. Paul began swinging around a prop cane he had found in the house and demanding money. Ramon said he didn't have cash in the house. Tom claimed he went to the bathroom, and when he came back, Navarro was on the floor, dead. The prosecution would later explain that the boys fixed the crime scene to make it look like Navarro was murdered by a female prostitute, or maybe Larry Ortega. They moved the body into bed and wrote Larry's name on the bedsheet and on a notepad. They also stuck a condom in Navarro's stiffening hand and wrote in pancake makeup on the mirror the barely literate phrase, us girls are better than faggots. They ditched their clothes, which had blood on them, over a fence, and put on new clothes from Navarro's closet, and left. 
Navarro's body was found by his driver the next morning. The actor had bruises on his head, neck, chest, left arm, penis, and knees, and he was missing at least one tooth, which was found broken on the floor. But there was no indication that an Art Deco dildo had been shoved down his throat. Certainly, if such a thing had been found on the scene, no one else who was on the scene ever mentioned it. Navarro had probably choked to death on his own blood, flowing from his broken nose. Navarro's murder made the morning papers, but it took a while before the full story came to light. Eventually, Tom's phone call to Chicago led police to the Ferguson brothers. It would be almost two months before Paul and Tom were indicted, at which point it was revealed in the press that Navarro had died because he had invited men over to his house to have sex with him. This was the first indication to most of the public that Ramon Navarro had been gay. The trial began in July 1969, about two weeks before the Manson murders. On the stand, Paul stuck to his story that while he had been passed out on the couch, Tom had killed Ramon Navarro. But Tom said that Paul had killed Navarro and had convinced Tom to take the rap for the murder because as a minor, he wouldn't face the death penalty. Tom said that once he discovered how badly Ramon had been beaten, he couldn't go through with a false confession. The two brothers couldn't agree on their defense, but both of their lawyers blamed the victim. In his closing arguments, Paul's lawyer disparaged Navarro for having been a drunk and called him, quote, an accident walking around, looking for a place to happen. Tom's attorney reiterated that Paul was guilty but used Ramon's sexuality as a tool to mitigate the degree of guilt of both Ferguson boys. Of Navarro, he said, Back in the days of Valentino, this man who set female hearts aflutter was nothing but a queer. There's no way of calculating how many felonies this man committed over the years for all his piety. What would have happened that night if Paul had not gotten drunk on Navarro's booze at Navarro's urging and at Navarro's behest? Would this have happened if Navarro had not been a seducer and a traducer of young men? The answers to those questions will determine the issue and degree of guilt of Tom Ferguson and the issue and degree of guilt of Paul Ferguson. The district attorney weakly asked the jury to not put Mr. Navarro on trial, and declared that even if Navarro was morally reprehensible for buying gay sex, the Fergusons were worse for selling it. They are hustlers, the DA said. I don't know why I keep using those nice words. That means a male whore. That is what they are. They sell their bodies to other men for money. What kind of a person do you think does that? The jury decided that both brothers were guilty. During the sentencing phase, 
Tom changed his story, now essentially combining Paul's original version with his own and taking credit for beating Navarro with the cane after Ramon, quote, kept trying to put his fingers up my rectum. Tom explained that he had lied before because he thought his previous story would ensure a lighter sentence for both he and his brother. Paul was supposed to get manslaughter and I was supposed to get off, Tom said. It's not our fault that we got a dumb jury. Both Fergusons were sentenced to life in prison. Over the next decades, both would change and complicate their stories. In 2012, Paul claimed he hit Ramon to fend off his advances. Of murder, I was innocent, he said. Of manslaughter, I wasn't innocent. Even of manslaughter, maybe you could say I was innocent. But I was guilty of hitting him. I did hit him, but I did it in a drunken stupor. Mr. Navarro died because he was so drunk that the blood in his throat, the involuntary muscle in his throat, didn't work because the alcohol suppressed it. If he had turned his head, if he had been a little more sober, he would not have died. That's the God's truth. In the same interview, Paul said he believed the police had planted evidence at the crime scene to make the crime look worse than it was. Tom was released in 1977 then went back to prison for most of the 80s on a rape charge, then was reincarcerated for failing to register as a sex offender. Then he was released. But then, in 2005, he killed himself, slitting his own throat. After his release from San Quentin, Paul was given a 30-year sentence for rape and sodomy in 1989. He maintained that he had been framed by the prosecutor. When it comes to Ramon Navarro, Kenneth Anger's version of the story commits crimes of omission, distortion, and just plain confusion. I don't know what he's talking about when he says Navarro died extravagantly. And extravagantly certainly was not how Navarro lived, particularly toward the end of his life when his only expenses were cigarettes, booze, and $20 assignations. Hopefully, if you've learned anything from this series, it's that Hollywood Babylon is not a reliable source of history. But then, neither is anything else taken out of context or read without skepticism or scrutiny. If there's anything I hope the 145 episodes of this podcast has made clear over the past four-plus years, it's that our collective memories of Hollywood are often distorted incomplete, or just plain wrong. Even when we're not getting our information from a source that has been as thoroughly debunked as Hollywood Babylon. After today, this podcast will be on hiatus. I cannot tell you when there will be new episodes, because I don't know. If this is the last time we speak for a while, please know how much your listenership has meant to me. This show has only gone on as long as it has because there continue to be people who want to hear it and who share it with anyone they can, any way they can. I hope to join you soon. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. 
Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. Good night. <laughs>